0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Flourish FM. In this episode, Nick and I talk to Dr. Gabriella Rosen-Kellerman. She is an author, entrepreneur, startup executive, and Harvard-trained physician with expertise in behavioral and organizational change, digital health, well-being, and AI. Her first book, Tomorrow Mind, Thrive at Work with Resilience, Creativity, and Connection, Now and in an Uncertain Future, was published in January this year. She served as Chief Product Officer and Chief Innovation Officer at BetterUp, a transformation platform for global professionals, and as Head of BetterUp Labs, better research on, which studies whole person development in partnership with labs at Harvard, Stanford, University of Pennsylvania, and many more. Nick, what did you love most
1: about this conversation? You just listed it off. What a wildly impressive woman, right? With a rich history in psychiatry in coaching in business. And I think she really brings all of that to this conversation. And so I think listeners will recognize different terms that we've dug into through throughout different episodes, but she addresses them in very different ways in a different context specifically as they sort of manifest at work or experienced at work but i think the best thing she did was create that bridge we always want to create which is to take her rigorous academic background but make it into really tangible doable skills that our listeners can apply right away to improve their work lives how about you yeah absolutely everything you've just said and fully agree
0: phenomenal Person, everything she's done, everything she's continuing to do. I was particularly taken by this concept of tomorrow mind. So this is a type of mindset that allows us to anticipate change, plan appropriately, respond to setbacks and achieve our full potential. And in the book, she describes the five key components that make up tomorrow mind and really enjoyed digging into that area in this conversation. All right, we hope you love this conversation as much as we did. This is Nick and my interview with Dr. Gabriella Rosen-Kellerman. Gabriella, welcome. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. So we've absolutely loved reading your recently published book with Martin Seligman, or Marty, we might refer to him throughout this conversation since we'll we know him. Tomorrow, Mind Thrive at Work with Resilience, Creativity and Connection Now and in an Uncertain Future. And this book offers a whole array of practical advice for facing the uncertain future of work so we can thrive in the workplace amidst the rapid continuing change we face based on yours and Marty's research on workplace wellbeing. So to begin with, what motivated you and Marty to write this book and why is there such an urgent need for this now?
2: Yeah, we've been researching together, Marty and I, for about six years through the umbrella of BetterUp Labs. In the course of that research, we've reported on, we published on different pieces of findings around different specific skills, but we hadn't had an opportunity to get the bigger picture of that six years of research out to a popular audience. And so sort of stepping back from all of the work, from the pieces we hadn't yet found a way to publish from the broader perspective of how it was all coming together, We felt like a book was the right vehicle to do that. I will say it's not something we set out wanting to or intending to do together. It just sort of emerged as a need as we step back and and look at the work.
1: How did it emerge? be curious to hear more about kind of how it progressed if it wasn't sort of the obvious direction to take initially.
2: Yeah. So it actually started specifically around prospection. So in the book, we go through five skills. Prospection is one of the five. We have so much research around prospection and we we continue to publish it. And just a paper came out just last week, I believe, or the week before from our team and We started to realize that there's a lot that needs to be explained about prospection and why it's important and what it is and how it functions to serve our species. And that stuff just didn't make sense to try to put into an academic publication. We thought about writing about prospection for coaches, but we felt like we were doing coaches a disservice by just writing about it for them when then they would have to educate a broad audience about what this skill was in addition to helping them build it. So that was where we decided to shift to a popular audience on prospection. And then as we got into the project of this big book on prospection, we realized it didn't make sense to have prospection stand alone because we really think of it as being a core part of, of this broader set of skills. So it just got sort of bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know at that point, it, it didn't make sense to do it as a booklet or as an audio book. It really needed to be a, a proper and popular book.
1: Absolutely. Okay. So you just gave us the perfect organic bridge, right? We were going to eventually ask about these different sets of skills. Let's start. Would you just walk us through sort of the PRISM acronym? But then if you would, I'd love to kind of, you said, what is prospection and just sort of explain it to the audience a little bit and we'll kind of work through them maybe one by one.
2: Sure. So PRISM is the acronym for the five skills that we see as essential to thriving in today's world of work. P is prospection. We'll go into that in a minute. R is for resilience, which is our ability to thrive through challenge. We'll put it that way for now. I is innovation. So we live in a, a world of work where there's an innovation imperative. Innovation also happens to be something that helps support well-being and thriving and, and a sort of self-actualizing. S is social Connection, And in particular, we talk about something called rapid rapport, which is the ability to build trust quickly across difference. And then M is mattering, which is a sort of essential level of a feeling of purpose, a feeling that there's a point to our labors. Deeper levels of that include things like meaning and purpose, but mattering is really the minimum.
1: Great. Thank you.
2: And then on the prospection side, so prospection is our ability to imagine and plan for the future. It's a uniquely human capability. About seven or eight years ago, Marty co-authored a collection of essays called Homo Prospectus, which was really making the argument that prospection is a key feature of our species, maybe even the defining feature of our species that we can see ahead to possible different futures and outcomes. And in an era of work that's defined by constant change and where that constant change and uncertainty threatens our agency, which is a huge part of our our stability as human beings, Prospection gives us an edge over that uncertainty to be able to not necessarily predict the future, but to foresee a probabilistic array of possibilities ahead of us and to then position ourselves proactively in an agile manner against those possibilities gives us a, a way of of restoring that centeredness, restoring a sense of control in the midst of all of this turbulence.
0: Right. Thank you. So we should clarify as well, these are the five components that make up what you call a tomorrow mind, right? The title of the book.
2: Correct. Is
0: there anything else to add to what exactly a tomorrow mind is?
2: Well, I think it's important just to state that this is really about thriving in this world of work today. So, The only world of work that our brains are naturally adapted to is hunting and gathering. That's how we evolved over millions and millions of years. Every world of work since then, whether it's farming and agriculture or the industrial era, We've had to adapt to it. And this is really about how do we thrive in this particular set of circumstances at work? Um, These are the skills that we see as essential to get to that outcome of high well-being, high performance, high fulfillment.
0: Awesome. So can I also ask, in the book, this is the PRISM acronym, but you list them in the book as not in the PRISM order. It goes R-M-S-P-I. Is that a ranking of importance in terms of the skills for thriving in the workplace today or is that just arbitrary?
2: Yeah. So I'll tell you a quick story. We had written the whole book before we came up with the acronym and we almost sent the book to market without the acronym. And Marty was very insistent we need an acronym and I couldn't come up with anything and he couldn't come up with anything. So we put a call out to friends and family and it was actually my dad who came up with the acronym. So the order in the book is determined by the order that we see the skills is kind of layering in. So we start with resilience and then mattering, very foundational to our ability to just keep getting up day after day and and doing the work and in the midst of constant challenge, social connection, a huge part of that. At one point, we had organized the book into those three skills are part of the surviving at work and then prospection and innovation are thriving at work. They're sort of once you have the basics covered, now you can soar and have these superpowers. The prism was a. It was is very much out of order, but it was hard enough to come up with an acronym of any kind, <laughs> let alone one that was in order.
0: Awesome, thank you. Okay, so let's move into more directly into flourishing. Then, so you write early in the book, you hope this book will become our guide to flourishing as a fully human being in a world that's increasingly controlled by machines. And I mean, you do emphasize that we can thrive in today's world, but to begin with, on the, on this area of questioning. I mean, does our relationship with technology, do you think, need to change for us to flourish in today's world, given the workplace we're living in now? And if so, how does it need to change?
2: I think we have different relationships as individuals with technology. I wouldn't generalize about what that looks like i would say that there are ways that technology has universally improved our lives that we are some of us are aware of others you know are are more in a narrative of technology is is doom and gloom even when we think about the ways that technology ends up replacing some of the human labor a lot of that happens in ways that we embrace because it takes tedious tasks off our plate right one sort of task at a time It's not just coming in and and in one fell swoop taking over our jobs. So I think that it's less about the relationship with technology and more about the relationship with ourselves and being very open-eyed about what these challenges are that we're up against. It's not just technology also. So globalization, the fact that, yes, mediated by technology, but we have this massively interconnected global world is a huge part of what's driving the pace of change and what's driving the quantity of change that shows up in our inbox and on our airwaves every morning. And that's very different from even 50 years ago and, and what it was like to try to build a thriving career.
1: Sure. So I wonder if you might not to put you on the spot, if you have sort of a tangible example of how might things change. You mentioned AI, maybe that's a good case study at such a rapid rate that you could take prism right and its many component parts and sort of apply it maybe not exactly in the moment although i'm sure there's some of that but over the course of weeks months years whatever it might be to navigate that rapid change what would that look like on a on a just sort of day-to-day normal life
2: yeah so i'll i'll start with resilience and that is often where people need to begin so at any given moment for for all of us and and anyone listening there might be one key challenge that we're really focused on. Let's say it's a reorganization within our corporation or a career change, or it's some new technology we're having to learn. We can get really fixated on that, overcoming that specific challenge. And the project of PRISM and the Tomorrow Mind and Resilience in particular is having a different perspective, which is that That is one of many, many, many changes of a forest. That's one tree in a forest of change that we are going to be navigating for the rest of our careers. And to invest in building resilience, it's not about getting through that one change. It's about arming yourself to get through all of those changes. It may be that that initial challenge is what's motivating you to do this work, but don't shortchange yourself by focusing on just getting through the one. Really invest in building resilience, which is going to let you, yes, overcome this, Not just overcome it, potentially grow stronger because of it. You want to be able to navigate this forest growing stronger with each part that you get through.
1: Anti fragility.
2: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. At the extreme end of resilience is is anti fragility, which is this kind of superpower of growing stronger because of the challenges. And and if you feel that way, if you have that idea of yourself, you actually run toward the challenge. You wake up excited that there's a new challenge because you get to grow stronger, just like a new challenge in the gym that's going to build your bone density. So that's resilience on the the mattering side. So even with a foundation of resilience behind us, if we're going to get up and, and keep working day after day we need that sense that our labors are working towards some end. There's lots of ways of developing that sense of mattering for ourselves, and we we go through it in the book. But a lot of the mattering work is targeted toward leaders who need to be able to help the people who report to them feel that their work matters. So this is all about how do you do that? How do you create that sense that even if I ask you to walk away from six months of work and do something completely different, that those six months still mattered, that I can narrate to you the reasons those six months mattered, so you'll believe in me and telling you that the next six months will matter even though this could happen again six months later. And so that's sort of a, it's a personal journey. It's also a leadership journey and pointing the way toward pivot after pivot, chapter after chapter of, of new initiative. Shall I keep going?
0: I mean, I, th- I think you should, because yeah, this the PRISM acronym is really at the core of the whole book and what it means to have a tomorrow mind. So please do.
2: Great. So then social connection comes into play in two important ways. So, so much of the productivity that we generate at work today, whether it's innovation, whether it's different forms of product iteration, it happens collaboratively. And so we need to find ways to connect with people at work. In authentic and organic ways in order to generate really high quality collaborative outputs. It's also about the customer. So as technology kind of eats away at the interactions between a company and and the customer, the pieces that are left for us to do as human to human become much higher stakes. There's a higher expectation of Of connection, a higher expectation of kind of interpersonal satisfaction that's going to happen when I talk to a human being on the other end versus a chatbot. These skills around social connection really let us get there, even though there's a lot of reasons that work today gets in the way of connection. So we, we don't have a lot of time to connect with each other. We're geographically distanced from each other because of this global nature of work. We're interacting with people who are very, very different from us. But we somehow need to quickly connect in order to get to those good outcomes. And by the way, really in order to support our well-being, since relationships are such a huge pillar of well-being. So for all of those reasons, social connection is is the third in this acronym.
1: Really quick, I'd love for you to finish. I just want to put a pin here and say, let's come back to rapid rapport, because I think you just sort of alluded to it there. And I want to make sure we hit that. But let's, let's keep going. We got great momentum here.
2: Great. We talked about prospection already a bit, so I might skip over that one and just finish out with innovation. So our work on innovation is all about the idea that everyone is an innovator. Biologically, we are innovators, but in the modern workscape, we need everyone to innovate because the challenges are coming so fast and they're novel. They're in many ways inherently novel. They're very specific and we are often the only ones aware of them at our particular edge of the business, Whatever that may be. We have the hardware, we have the software necessary to innovate, but there are sometimes self-conceptions that get in the way. There's a lack of education about what innovation looks like that we try to provide. And then there's a lot of interesting tools that we are articulating around how to build a lifestyle that supports creativity. That has to do with the way our brains work and the way that a lot of our our modern technology interferes with some of the mechanisms that we need to be highly creative. So we try to help people build this sort of lifestyle, what we call creativity hygiene, in order to facilitate that creative output.
1: So explain creativity hygiene. I like that term, by the way. That's a good term.
2: Well, Marty does not like that term. So. <laughs> That's
1: okay. That's all right. <laughs>
2: you can let him know next time you talk to him. No, I, I actually agree with his challenge to the term, which is that for certain people, it connotes like dental floss, sort of like this, <laughs> this weird hygiene is not necessarily a word that feels good or inspiring, but the analogy is to sleep hygiene, which is something that people are increasingly aware of. And so the challenge with sleep hygiene was how do we help people sleep better Given that sleep is not a conscious act, right? We can't just tell ourselves to sleep, but we can build up a lifestyle within our our conscious awareness that's going to facilitate better that non-conscious output. And that's similarly the challenge of creativity, Only certain parts of creativity are within conscious control and certain parts are not. And so how do we build up a lifestyle that is within our conscious control to facilitate higher quality outputs from those non-conscious aspects? In particular, it's the default mode network, which is one of three brain networks that's really essential for creativity. That is not really within conscious control, but there are things that we can do in order to facilitate its functioning.
1: Awesome. Which is maybe worth coming back to just type of the shifting relationship with technology as well, but a, a simple way of saying, how do you get into the default network? Like be bored, allow your brain to rest a little bit. From what I'm aware of in terms of some of the data, we're doing an awful lot less of that, right? These days, not giving ourselves those opportunities.
2: Yeah. It's be a little bored, right? Don't sort of rely around and do nothing. You want to be doing something, but not too much. And that's kind of that ideal recipe for the output.
1: Habits, things you can sort of automatically process, do without thinking, but allow some of that space and mind wandering.
2: Yeah, exactly. Autopilot. So showering, walking, gardening, those sorts of things.
0: Yeah. Great. Thank you, Gabriella. So let's run with the relationship building side of things a little bit given the importance of this for well-being we've had several podcast guests that have talked about this at length such as mark shawls is one of the associate director of the harvard study for art development but they emphasize that relationships are the most kind of important thing to focus on for our well-being and in your book you also focus on relationships a lot with this really interesting notion of rapid rapport which you describe as the connection we need to flourish and you write we need to become experts at this you describe what it is You also describe in the book that it's not natural to our ancient brains to kind of form relationships very quickly. So what practical advice do you have for building rapid rapport skills, given that we're not really adapted to doing this?
2: Yeah, so we go through three different major barriers to connection, and we kind of offer tips for how to overcome each of those efficiently. The three barriers, the first is time. So we don't have a lot of time. The feeling of being in a hurry is itself a barrier to connection. When we feel that we're in a hurry, it correlates with antisocial behaviors, the second is space. So the geographic distribution, you know, we're, we're used to building close bonds in person versus over Zoom or, or by phone or certainly by email. And then the last is what we call us them. It's actually what Robert Sapolsky, the neuroendocrinologist, calls us them, which is this idea that we are wired to process everyone we meet as either an us or a them. And contrary to what you might immediately assume that us is really about the 50 or 100 people we would have had in our tribe when we were hunter-gatherers. It's really close family is us and everyone else is them along some dimension. And it's only when we think of someone as an us that we reach the steep level of trust that facilitates all of these outcomes in terms of our well-being, in terms of creative collaboration, in terms of delightful customer service. So it's in our interest to figure out how to reprocess people quickly and efficiently. Each of those has sort of different ways of, of addressing, but I'll give you an example for the space one. So we did a study with Professor Sonia Lubomirsky, who runs the Positive Activities.
1: I know Sonia, yeah.
2: And Wellbeing Lab at at Riverside. She's a wonderful friend and, and colleague. And what we did was we said, okay, let's look at, of all the different activities you could do in order to build a relationship with a colleague, which of them is going to get you the most bang for your buck in terms of the time invested? versus the level of connection that you're able to build with those folks. And we looked at different types of activities. So she's very interested in particular in social acts versus pro-social acts. Pro-social is really you're intending to do something kind for someone versus to kind of spend time socially. We looked at, is it done by phone? Is it done by mail? Is it done in person? The medium of how it's done. We looked at the kind of act, is it gift giving and what matters. Mattered the most across all of that was synchrony. It was shared time. So whether it's Done live in person, whether it's done by Zoom or whether it's done by phone, that sense that we're sharing time together as we're engaged in this social activity had the greatest impact on on building that bridge between us. Versus mail or email or a message board or texting, those things aren't as powerful for for giving us that sense of connection. And we have hypotheses about why that might be true. It's something about shared memory creation. There sort of becomes more of a place in each of our brains where we're storing each other in a shared bank of memories, something like that might be where it's going, but regardless of the explanation, it's that aspect of synchrony that is most powerful. So if you have that 15 minutes to spend investing in a relationship, do it in real time with the other person.
1: Makes me think of, I think it's Brene Brown term, collective moments. I think she actually describes it as moment of synchronicity. She gives great examples. John Zabret He'd appreciate it. But just being a soccer guy, when the entire stadium is singing the same song for Liverpool, you'll never walk alone, or you're at a concert and the artist stops and the entire crowd takes over. But these moments of sort of shared experience and connection, and she's coming at it from a different research angle, but it sounds like a, a somewhat similar term to what you're describing.
2: Yeah, I think that shared experience, that bonding, you know, in that case, it's a group versus a one-on-one affinity. And there's something very, very powerful about the one-on-one too, but it also aligns with so much ancient wisdom of, of how religions were formed and these religious communities were formed, which in some ways was a similar problem of bonding people who weren't naturally part of a tribe to begin with. So it it makes sense.
1: Could we get into a little, because I, I just reading through some of your recent articles this morning, and there was, I think, the, the one that was super interesting, sort of about the perception of time and giving, and it also referenced that remote work in some studies is actually causing loneliness, and I think these are two really important specific areas to sort of dive into. Maybe we can kind of take them one by one in whichever order you prefer, but I just love to hear your take and explain them a little bit more.
2: Yeah. So I'll start with the first one. I mentioned earlier that not having time is a barrier to connection, both because we just feel like we don't, have the time to spend to do these things. And because this like, this mentality of what's called time famine, of being in a hurry, I just don't have time for anything, it is in many studies shown to lead to different kinds of antisocial behaviors. So there's a, a famous study on this by a trio of professors out of Wharton, Yale, and Harvard, and it's called Giving Time Gives You Time. And what they looked at was how do we shift people from time famine to time abundance? So there's a a way of being two people with the exact same schedule. One person could feel hurried and rushed all the time. And the other one's sort of in the moment doing their thing, but doesn't have that sense of pressure on them. How do we shift from one to the other? And they looked at, okay, if we give people back 30 minutes in their day and we tell them do nothing, we tell them do something nice for yourself. We tell them do something nice for other people. Or I think Go do work. I forget the the last condition of all of those. The only one that worked to shift people, or the one that worked best to shift people from time famine to time abundance, was this condition of giving the time to other people. So it turns out that when even when you feel hurried, if you force yourself to actually again give that time to other people, and I would say give it in synchronous fashion, right and 15, 30 minute increments of shared time, it shifts you into a more connected place and into a way of being mentally where you're more open to connection and where you have this greater sense of abundance of time. So it it becomes this positive feedback loop then that you shift into a new way where you're gonna be more open in general to spending that time with other people.
1: Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you went that route a little because I was curious about mechanism Right. Maybe mechanism wasn't explored. Maybe you got some hypotheses that you're willing to share. Maybe, you know,
2: no. So in that paper, there was not mechanism wasn't explored. I think that we're still understanding what it means to be in one mindset versus the other. But I, I mean, I think that we've all had that experience of being sort of lost in the moment with other people. And when you are really connected with another human being, you're really not thinking about all those other things that are stressing and pressuring you about deadlines. Like it's one of the ways that helps us feel calmer and more centered. And so I, I think that there's a, a lot here to substantiate a viewpoint that there's different brain networks involved. Probably right. And that, and that there's this shortcut to getting out of one set of brain networks and into another that we're able to almost force ourselves into by giving, deciding we're going to use that time to give to people and to intentionally connect with them.
1: On a really simplistic level, it seems like just shifting the focus from me, me, me kind of threat. I got to worry about this thing to a point where things are calm enough that I can focus on somebody else has to be not just a mindset, but a physiological shift as well, I would imagine.
2: Totally. We have a lot of great evidence on what that shift looks like. We get into the the rest and recharge network and our vagal tone improves and cortisol levels drop, right? So it's It's definitely a, a different way of being. I think the, the time abundance piece is typically a different conversation than the social connection piece, but it, it seems like those two are coalesce.
1: That's a super cool finding. Hi friends, Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well-being and anti-fragility—the ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division One programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com. I was quite taken in chapter five or chapter six of the book on
0: Rapid rapport. You talk about how social connection engages the parasympathetic nervous system, right? And you talk about the vagus nerve in particular. Super interesting connection here. There's lots of practical advice for our listeners, but also Nick and I's takeaway from this is two people that, remote, that work remotely and have never met
1: each other in person.
2: <laughs> wow. You've never met. Yeah. Oh, my goodness.
1: Despite doing this for like a year and a half. It's still strange to say. Yeah, we've been friends for years at this point. But yeah, still strange to say. So, But yeah, anyway, I I was interested to see because you're an accomplished academic, right? You published a lot. So you would not use the word causes lightly, right? Which is super interesting to see. Especially for some of the reasons you outline, like there's still something to be said for leveraging remote environments, right, to create connection, but we should be aware that it's kind of a double-edged sword, it sounds like.
2: Yeah, there's lots of evidence about the ways that not sharing space together predispose us to loneliness as an outcome. There's lots of factors involved, including the fact that if we're working remotely, often that means we're not leaving our house, which means we're not interacting with anyone, whether it's in our commute or in the restaurant, let alone in the workplace. So the increased in remote work has led to greater isolation greater physical isolation which then naturally you know it would correlate with loneliness and emotional a feeling of emotional isolation we're optimistic that there are ways of overcoming that that it's not a foregone conclusion if you're working remotely that you have to be lonely but it is a it's something we have to be aware of and we have to build new rhythms of our life around that to make sure that we don't fall into that sort of way of isolation. We'll also say that something we're studying right now in our lab is what are the ways that remote work is helpful to workers from different backgrounds? And the leading hypothesis being, and there's already some data out there, but there's a different angle we're taking on this that you know, be able to share when we we have a, a bit more of the findings. There's, I think, this idea that being able to work remotely gives us a lot more flexibility, which is very advantageous to people from certain backgrounds, people in certain phases of life. And that flexibility is not necessarily, it may in fact enhance our ability to connect with others, to be caregivers or parents or whatever that might be, for example. And so I I hesitate to go too far ahead of the data in terms of saying remote work makes us lonely. I think that there's patterns of living that emerge around all of this. And it's really that lifestyle that we have to look at versus one dimension. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: There's a good bridge.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Gabriella. So going more directly into to flourishing as a concept is the, the account of flourishing that underpins your book is that of positive psychology, the, the scientific study of human flourishing. And of naturally, we discuss this all the time on this podcast, but hopefully we can dig in a bit deeper to this right now and look at some developments actually that you describe in your book. Could you describe recent developments in positive psychology? You go through its history and the state of the science today, including to the perma. Theory of well-being, PERMA being an acronym representing various domains of well-being. So you describe engagement, the E in PERMA, as engagement in work, love, and play. Meaning, the M, as meaning and mattering. And you emphasize that mattering is the more important bit, as you described earlier. And accomplishment, the A, which encompasses mastery and occupational thriving, which, of course, is so important in this book. So for our listeners, could you please describe the PERMA theory of well-being, some of the key ways that you've applied this in your work with organizations to improve workplace well-being?
2: Sure. So let me start by just talking about well-being for a moment. So when we talk about well-being, we're in this conversation, in this field, we're talking about subjective well-being typically subjective well-being, which is a feeling of happiness, right? But it's a deeper version of happiness. It's not hedonism. It's a more holistic way of thinking about the life well-lived. Now, because of the complexity, it even took me to just explain that, you can imagine that it's hard to decide how do you measure well-being. And so one of the earliest and important foundational pieces of research for positive psychology was to come up with this acronym Perma, which you just described, five pillars of well-being. Those five together amount; those five dimensions together: positive emotions, engagement, relationship, meaning, accomplishment. Those five together come amount to how how high is our our well-being? There's other ways of thinking about it. Some people will use a measure called life satisfaction, which is sort of generally how happy do I feel about my life? For other people, it's about how much positive emotion versus negative emotion. Do I have all of that together? It, there's slightly different takes on it. It all correlates really highly. So at the end of the day, it turns out not to matter terribly much, which of those approaches you're using, they, they tend to coalesce. And that becomes the the foundation of like, what are we trying to accomplish with positive psychology? What are we trying to accomplish with the work of BetterUp? What are we trying to accomplish in terms of helping people with coaching to achieve this really fully self-actualized way of being? Now, what we've added to that with the acronym PRISM is how does that all come to life in the workplace, right? So if you, apply now to the sort of general challenges of being a human, the specific challenges of today's world of work, what are the skills that we need in order to thrive in that environment? That's where PRISM now now overlays onto PERMA.
0: Great. Thank you. And I didn't realize the way in which these kind of interrelate in, in this complex, interesting way. So can we dig into a couple of the components, going back to meaning and mattering? Because later in the book, you write that today we replace meaning with its more actionable, specific constituent mattering. Is M mattering, just mattering? Is it now meaning and mattering? And what's the difference between them?
2: So Marty was the originator of PERMA, along with a, a couple of his colleagues. And in that era, they said it was meaning Marty now feels quite strongly that it is mattering, and that's been the focus of our research together for the last several years. So let me explain why beyond the semantics, this, this actually matters, so to speak. Okay, so when we talk about meaningful work in particular, and this is something I've been researching for many years and talking about from in keynotes for many years as well, there's always some portion of the audience that is unconvinced. And they're unconvinced for one of two different reasons. The first reason is that they're corporations, corporate leaders that feel really good about the work that they do, feel really good about the value they're putting out into the world, but feel that meaning is an almost a spiritual dimension that belongs to the worker, that the corporation shouldn't really be involved in. And so great if you find your work meaningful, but we're not going to interfere, quote unquote, in in the realm of meaning for you. We don't see that as, as our place. The second group that has a problem with the term meaning is a little more technical. And this is the group that says, what is meaning? Right? What does it really mean? And even the academic version of the definition of meaning, which is a three pronged definition that includes Purpose, significance, and coherence, those are three very, very different things. So the challenge fundamentally is, is the word meaning meaningful or not? In Marty's words, he would say it's a flabby word. It's not as useful as something as fundamental as mattering. So mattering, and Rebecca Goldstein is someone whose work we draw on heavily in our research. She's a MacArthur fellow who wrote The Mind-Body Problem, and she described this idea of mattering as the fundamental drive of a human. What keeps us moving and acting in the world is the idea that these actions matter, that there is some consequence to our action that makes them worth doing. And I can tell you, having now lectured equally to audiences about mattering versus meaning, I have never heard either of those objections to the word mattering. It's closely linked to meaning. You can use a lot of the same argumentation around the need to have people feel that their work matters but it doesn't elicit that same sense of that's too personal. It's too spiritual. You can get a lot more corporate buy-in to this idea that you need to be able to explain to every worker why there's a purpose for their work, what the point of this work is. If you expect them to show up every day, that is something that you owe them as a human being, whereas not everyone will agree that the same is true of meaningful work.
1: It's super interesting. You know, we've had Lisa Miller on. I don't know if you and Lisa know each other at all.
2: No, but I know her work.
1: Yeah, just wonderful research, wonderful person. Just as soon as we mentioned the distinction here, my my head went to spirituality is going to get isolated here a little bit, which makes plenty of sense, especially the way you explained it. Would you isolate purpose? As you explain mattering, it sounds to me conceptually like purpose, right? But do you think those are really clear, distinct constructs?
2: So I think that the goal is less about isolating one construct for another. I think it's it's wonderful for people who find spirituality in their work. I myself find tremendous meaning, significance in the work that I do. It's more about how can we use language that's going to get the broadest support and buy-in.
1: The context, yeah.
2: And for some people that does, using mattering is a way into a conversation about spirituality. Uh, Someone puts that on, if you're a leader and someone puts that on the table for you, that's an invitation from them to be part of that with them. And and I think you should embrace it and you should have the skills to do that. This is more about how do we have the widest tent to bring the, the most folks in to this fundamental human need and avoiding language that's going to keep people out of it or make people push back on it.
1: Well, that's why my head went to purpose, because in in similar context scenarios, that sort of language shift, I think, has been really advantageous for me, where that's meaning sounds a little abstract. It's hard to grab onto. You're always nervous about going the spirituality side. But purpose, people seem to be able to wrap their brain around that a little bit more. But you think, are they different mattering and purpose? One sounds like, oh, I feel a purpose. And so I want to contribute, right? Me to we. The other kind of feels like, the we recognizes me, I matter to them. Am I thinking about that correctly?
2: No, I think there's a close relationship between those two. I think there's also an element of significance in the word mattering, that there, you know, the, this action has some broader significance beyond me. So I think it, it doesn't actually necessarily break down ideally with the three elements of meaning of coherence, purpose, and significance, but I agree it's very close to purpose.
1: Sure,
0: great, thank you. Thank you. One final question on PERMA. Did you and Marty ever consider having that additional component some people add to PERMA, V or H, vitality or health? Because that's quite a common construction. I and mean, it seems like it should be included in any account of flourishing or thriving in the workplace, that people have energy with vitality or, or that their health is of a certain level. Did you consider that? And, and if, if so, why, why is it not included?
2: Yeah, great question. So I was not involved in the development of Perma, so this would be more of a Marty question, where where he would put those. I can tell you that at BetterUp, when we're measuring broad dimensions of how folks are doing. We do measure physical health in terms of, we do measure engagement. We measure different proxies for vitality as well. I think there's also a question of what is the nomological net to use a very technical term, but what's the the causal relationship between all of these? What is the input and what's the outcome? And so in our model, for example, we actually treat resilience as an outcome. And so in the chapter in the book on resilience, you, you may recall there's five drivers of resilience. And those are the things that you invest in, in order to get to a resilient outcome. And I think there's ways of thinking about vitality similarly, in terms of how do you create a lifestyle that gives you energy versus a a lifestyle where your energy is going to be drained. So that, I guess, is my, I think vitality is extremely important to study and understand, but I'm not quite sure personally, if it's actually an an outcome versus a resource or, or an input.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's a great point, and I can see how it would build into things like relationships and the role of those. There, great. Right. So you've mentioned coaching a few times, Gabriella, and your work with BetterUp. Love to go down that route. So you started BetterUp Labs, as yes, I understand. You were you were the founder of BetterUp Labs, a research organization that focuses on workplace thriving. Right.
2: Yeah, so BetterUp was itself started in 2013 by Alexi Robichaud and Eddie Medina. They're the co-founders of BetterUp. And in 2016, Alexi asked me to start BetterUp Labs, which was a vision he had had for a research organization that would really focus on the science of thriving at work and figuring out what are these dimensions? What do we need? What is the science that exists versus the science that we need to do? So today, that organization, we have about 50 PhD scientists at BetterUp. We have an advisory board of about 40 or 50 academic luminaries that we're extremely privileged to work with. Marty was the first person I went out to recruit for the board, and we do our own research in-house. We also do research in partnership with labs like Sonia's, helping to accelerate their progress in areas that we believe are, are really essential for us to achieve our mission.
0: Awesome. So I take it so let's just clarify better up labs this is a an organization that focuses on research on workplace thriving skills and you partner with academics to measure and promote flourishing work. And I take it a lot of the research in tomorrow mind is based on or coming from some of the key research you've done at better up labs, right? Exactly. Great. And let's also go into your your work in coaching too. So BetterUp has what, almost 4,000 coaches now?
2: Yeah, 4,000 all over the world.
0: Wow. So you you have a huge amount of experience working with coaches and in the book, you give some really useful practical coaching strategies. Thank you for this. Nick and I both coaches and I intend to certainly use some of these in in my work. We have
1: a BetterUp colleague as well.
0: Shout out Dr. Arlene Bauer, if she's listening. <laughs> so, you describe in the book the really important role coaches can play in helping people to thrive in the workplace. Now, coaching itself is quite a, a vague concept. If you ask a lot of people, what, a lot of people actually ask me what coaching is, and it's, it is a hard term to define. So, how do you define coaching, and why do you think it's so important to support workplace thriving?
2: Yeah so there's this general term of coach which can mean any number of things and is used in a, in a really broad way and then there's the way we use the term coach at better up and i imagine it aligns pretty closely to how the two of you use the term coach so i'll start with the general and then i'll get into the specific i think generally people think of a coach as a human who helps other humans with a particular set of skills you could have a fitness coach you could have a nutrition coach you have a sleep coach so there are these these different dimensions of ways of coaching you know we think about sports coaches a soccer coach you may have had as a kid they're people who inspire us they help us grow our skills work through challenges they support us in in a deep and personal way now in the world of better up the world that the three of us operate in, coaching takes a lot of its roots in a specific way from what used to be called executive coaching. So an executive coach was someone who specifically helped people with their professional growth and in doing so did not neglect the personal the personal was was part of it as well but that it was reserved for executives typically the c suite or vice presidents and above who were highly compensated individuals where it made sense for the organization to invest large 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 sums of money in providing them with this service and there's huge buy-in from the organization in general that this is worth it most CEOs have a coach or have several coaches even the reason that more people didn't have one was because it was so expensive and part of the the mission of BetterUp has been to make coaching available to more people make this form of coaching available to more people and we think about it and we talk about it as personal and professional development coaches who are there to help you achieve your personal and professional goals they can help you work on everything From emotional regulation, which is a core of resilience, it's a core of adult maturity to being an inclusive leader or an inspiring leader or being really good at communication. So we think of it as almost a a general practitioner model where you have a core coach who who can help you with this wide array of personal and professional development needs. And then within our network, we actually also have specialty coaches, including things like sleep coaches or nutrition coaches, where when there's that sort of vertical of need within your, your life, if you're general practitioner coach doesn't have that expertise, you can access the specialists as well. Yeah.
0: It's a great model. Absolutely.
2: And in terms of why do we believe in coaching and well-being? So I say this as someone who started my career in medicine, moved into building tech-based tools to support well-being, started myself as a psychiatrist, a therapist, I've transitioned into coaching as well. So I've done all of those things. I've built all of the tools. I've tried all the things, the effect sizes with a coach are just tremendous so that the impact that you see for these outcomes of flourishing, of improving population level well-being when you have a coach in the mix helping people is so much bigger than tech alone. It's bigger than certain types of therapy alone. So this is where we get to my personal mission and desire for impact, which is improving population level well being. And I really believe based on it, what I've seen so far, and I'm open minded that something new could come about any day. But what I've seen so far that coaching is the most effective, impactful, and ultimately scalable way to accomplish that
1: yeah well said yeah what a laudable ultimate aim you have with your life Gabriella yeah I mean you know the model aside just like you said the ability to scale and have a wide-ranging impact I think you and BetterUp are trying to solve something that a lot of us are trying to solve which how do we get these the science right and these services to more people in a way that's really like a win-win-win for all involved right and a little bit more uh, efficacious if you will So on the topic of coaching, our final question is going to ask you to to coach our listeners a little bit. As we alluded to earlier, we have the flourishing question, right? You've got this wealth of research, especially why don't we make it in the work context since that's where a lot of the the conversation has been. What's the one thing our listeners can do to sort of help themselves flourish or thrive at work? How might they start putting that into action?
2: Yeah. So I'm going to go back to something I said earlier in the Podcast and intentionally repeat myself, but with a different language to reinforce it. We use in the book the analogy of the whitewater world of work. So it's this idea that today, operating at work today, and this comes from our colleague John Seely Brown and Ann Pendleton Julian, that we are essentially like kayakers in the whitewater river, navigating constant change and disruption, trying to in the moment navigate the rapids around us while also Seeing ahead to what's coming around the bend. As I mentioned, at any given moment, we can be really captive to the specific challenge around us. And that could be a personal challenge, it could be a professional challenge. But my coaching is to, when you're taking the time to invest in yourself, to really work on reframing this as the challenge ahead. It's not about any one set of rapids. Again, if you want to switch metaphors, it's not about a particular tree. It's about this whitewater river we're going to be in for the rest of our careers. We're on the whitewater. And what does it take to build those skills? And our book has a lot of guidance and specifics on how to build those skills, particularly the chapter on resilience five drivers of resilience, how to build each of those. Invest in building this broader skill set, not just in getting through any one challenge. It will result if you just focus on the specific challenge you waste effort, you're not really arming yourself proactively for the future. You may get through it a little better, but you're still at risk of burnout over time versus if you really say, okay, the project for me, is becoming a whitewater rafter that will lead you to think about it in a different way and invest your energies in a different way.
1: So how do people find out how to become a whitewater rafter? Where can they engage with you and your work and find the book?
2: So you can find the book at any major bookseller. You can find me at my website, gabriellarosenkellerman.com. You can reach out to me there. You can follow me on uh, social, LinkedIn, Instagram. I'd love to connect.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Gabriella rosen kellerman This has been an amazing conversation and we hope all of you listening and watching today have really enjoyed it.
2: Thanks, John and Nick. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Gabriella. I really appreciate it. This was fun.
2: Thank you, guys.
0: Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show.
1: If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com.
0: We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today and keep putting in the work.